Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss data privacy engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lori Craner, Director and Professor in Security and Privacy Technologies at Carnegie Mellon University. And we'll be talking about Carnegie Mellon's privacy engineering course and Dr. Craner's research on privacy decision-making. Dr. Craner, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. I'm excited for this. Um, so let's uh, perhaps start with the basics, you know, nothing too tricky. Who are you and what's your backstory for how you ended up as a professor and researcher in the privacy space? Uh, yeah, so um, I started working in the privacy space about 25 years ago uh, after I got my doctoral degree in engineering and public policy. I started working at AT&T Labs in New Jersey and um, I was interested in internet policy related issues and there was an opportunity to uh, get involved in a new standards effort to develop uh, web privacy standards. And so I went to the meeting and thought I'd check it out. It seemed like something that might be fun to work on for a few months. Um, and uh, I ended up uh, getting involved in and then chairing the Platform for Privacy Preferences Working Group at the W3C, spent the next seven years immersed in privacy standards. Um, and uh, uh, along the way, realized that um, a really important thing would be for the privacy standards to actually have user interfaces that could be usable to people, or this wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, when I left AT&T, I decided to go to academia and um, uh, focus my research on the usability side of security and privacy. So I came to CMU and I've been here for almost 19 years now. That's amazing. That's a, a long um, history in the privacy space. And there's definitely, I want to uh, certainly spend some time talking about usable UIs for privacy and security. But, you know, before we get there, you know, you started your journey in the space 25 years ago. What, from what you recall, like, what was the sort of privacy community and uh, people working in the tech spaces, their sort of thoughts and, and interpretation of privacy from that era of the internet? Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, th this was the, the late 1990s and, um, you know, Congress had just discovered that internet privacy was a thing and they were telling the FTC and others, you know, you need to do something to fix this. Um, the FTC was starting to hold hearings. Uh, industry was trying to make the problem go away. Um, and uh, people were saying, well, well, we'll just post privacy policies and it will be good. Um, and uh, there, I, I think to start with, there wasn't a lot of um, efforts to actually improve privacy. Um, it was more of a focus on, well, let's just be transparent, notice and choice. Uh, we tell everybody what we're doing, give them choices, everything will be good. Um, and then in Europe, they were starting to pass privacy laws and they wanted to do more than that. And I actually remember going to meetings in the U.S., uh, industry meetings, where people were saying, well, uh, those are very European notions. You know, in the U.S., we're just sticking with notice and choice. Do you think, you know, this, I guess the, the fact that, like, Europe was sort of ahead of the game in terms of passing privacy laws, and as you mentioned, like, 
people's sort of interpretation or reaction to that being like, oh, those are like, you know, European notions. You think there's a, a cultural difference, I guess, in the way that people think about privacy on an individual basis that has impacted this rollout of, you know, or like, I guess, adoption of privacy laws in that uh, throughout, you know, the world and in, in different areas of the world? Uh, there certainly are cult cultural differences that uh, have had some impact. Um, I'm not sure that in the case of privacy and how much um, people value their privacy, the differences between the U.S. and Europe are that big um, to account for the more substantial differences in regulation. Um, so I think uh, history and the types of um, regulatory structures they have in Europe um, have maybe played more of a role in this particular case. I see. Well, one of the other things that you mentioned during your, your introduction is that you've now been at Carnegie Mellon University for, for 19 years, and you are also you know the director of the Privacy Engineering Program, which I believe started in 2013, so it's about 20 or 10 years ago. What's the history of that program? Like, how did it start? What was the motivation behind creating a master's degree program focused on privacy engineering? Yeah, we started offering courses, individual courses in privacy engineering topics uh, a few years before that. And um, we were uh, getting a lot of interest from students. And uh, we also uh, were getting a lot of calls from industry saying, hey, we're trying to hire privacy engineers and you seem to be teaching some courses. Do you have any graduates who could come do these jobs? And, you know, we had a few people, but um, realized that uh, there was a growing demand for privacy engineers and nobody was training them. There were no privacy degrees other than um, in law schools uh, at the time. And um, it, so it, it seemed like there was a need for this. And so we spent some time talking to people in industry about what exactly they were looking for in privacy engineers and what kind of training they would want and uh, looked at how we could take our existing courses, uh, add some new ones and evolve this into an entire master's degree program. That idea that students were bringing this up and expressing an interest in it, that really resonates with me as well. We had um, Jake Ward, the CEO and founder of Data Protocol on recently, which also offer, they offer a certificate program for industry professionals in um, privacy engineering. And one of the big things he, he you know, talked about in that conversation was that, you know, engineers care about privacy. There's, you know, this miss. Um, is misrepresented that engineers don't care about that. And I gave a, a, a guest lecture actually at a university several months ago. And one of the first questions I got from a third year student after I was done was, you know, why is this the first time I was hearing about this? And he was kind of annoyed that he hadn't been taught about some of the challenges the companies are facing around data privacy. And even for myself, I really didn't get that much exposure through, and I, I did three degrees in computer science uh, and, and worked as an engineer for a long time. It wasn't until I joined Google that I really had any exposure to privacy engineering, privacy programs, except you know PCI, things like PCI compliance. And there seems to be something that's like fundamentally missing, I guess, from a lot of computer science and software engineering education. So do you think privacy education should be part of you know, standard software engineering undergraduate programs? Yeah, I, I think it should be. Um, I also think there should be more security education as part of standard undergraduate programs. Uh, I think both privacy and security have been uh, 
fairly neglected in, in those uh, programs. Um, so, yeah, I, I would like to see more that's just built into um, the programs. Um, but, but beyond that, I think uh, then there, there's also a need for the courses, additional courses for people who want to go deep. Yeah. With you know, privacy engineering, I think it's a very cross-functional skill set in, in training. So which department does privacy, the privacy engineering master's program sit into? Is that within computer science or is it something else entirely at CMU? Uh, so at CMU, we have a school of computer science mm -hmm. uh, that has seven departments within it. Um, and we are in one of the departments in the school of computer science. Okay, great. And then if I was taking the master's degree program, like what does that consist of? Is that is there a research component like a typical master's degree or is it completely class-based? Uh, so it is a course-based program, but it includes a, uh, a practicum uh, project where uh, the students um, uh, work in teams on a capstone with a sponsor for an entire semester. Um, and students have the option of doing research as part of it as well. Uh, some students will do research with a faculty member instead of one of their elective courses, um, or instead of a summer internship in industry, they will do a research internship. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. And then what is, you mentioned this sits in the School of Computer Science, or are most of the people's back, like undergraduate backgrounds computer science going in this master's degree program, or is there some diversity of educational backgrounds? Yes, yeah, so uh, most of our students come from computer science backgrounds, but we do accept students from other backgrounds as long as they have some um, computer science experience generally, you know, gained on the job. And so we have had students come from uh, other types of engineering and sciences um, and even from backgrounds like communications. Um, we've had some students make that transition into privacy engineering. You know, for the ones that don't necessarily have a computer science background, how much technical training is part of the privacy engineering program? Are they, you know, do they need to sort of be able to understand uh, like general software engineering programming principles? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, we will only admit students into the program if they have already demonstrated some programming experience and some um, college level math experience, uh, preferably calculus. Uh, and so um, we, we've had some applicants who were otherwise very good, and we've told them, you know, go take some classes, you know, at a community college or online, get that background, and then in a year or two, come back uh, and apply. And we've actually had a couple of people do that. Yeah, I mean, I think for anybody that's looking for uh, a, the future of where a lot of technology companies are going, Moving into a privacy engineering career, I think, is a great greenfield space. There's tons and tons of companies that are they can't hire, they can't find enough people that have privacy engineering experience. So, do most of the graduates actually end up in a privacy engineering career, and what sort of companies do they typically end up at? Yeah, most of our graduates have ended up in privacy engineering. Um, sometimes not the first job after they graduate. Uh, we found that a lot of companies are looking for privacy engineers that have five to 10 years of work experience, um, which many of our graduates don't have. Uh, some of them um, do because they were working and then came back and got their master's. But anybody who's gone straight through wouldn't have that level of experience. 
Um, personally, I think the companies uh, should be a bit more open-minded about hiring students with with less experience because they're having trouble filling these privacy engineering jobs. But in, in any case, um, uh, we have a lot of students who go directly into these roles, and then we have students who will take on um, kind of general software developer, software engineering roles for a couple of years, and then uh, transfer into a privacy engineering role, either at the same company or hopping to a different company. Um, we have a large number of graduates who now work for Google. Uh, they're probably our largest employer. Um, we have them at Facebook, Snap, you know, all the, the big technology companies. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also have some in the financial industry, uh, at, at different financial institutions, at um, some of the big consulting companies, and then also at uh, you know, some, you know, other other companies that um, aren't particularly in the tech space, but uh, increasingly need privacy engineers. Like we have a, a, a graduate who's at Nike, for example. Yeah, I would think a lot of businesses that are, I mean, every you know, Nike, Target, Walmart, all these types of companies that we might not think of as traditional technology companies, they have a tremendous amount of tech that's going on within them. Like every company to stay relevant and innovative is a technology company to some extent at this point. And they are certainly storing a lot of data that is probably regulated and they want to secure because they don't want to end up on you know the front page of the New York Times because someone, <laughs> someone uh, got into their systems and leaked all that information. Exactly. The um, Carnegie Mellon University also offers a a certificate program, privacy certificate program. So what's the difference between that and the master's program? And is it a a different person or a different profile of person that's going and taking that certificate program versus the master's program? Yeah, so the master's program requires uh, three semesters of full-time study, or if you do it as a part-time program, it's still pretty intense and it's going to take like two or three years to do it. Uh, part-time. The certificate program is four weekends. That's it. Uh, You have the whole certificate. So in four weekends, obviously, we can only scratch the surface of privacy engineering. Um, But for a lot of people, what we found is that's all they want. You know, they don't want to commit to doing a full degree program, but they would like to increase their knowledge of privacy engineering. Um, so, uh, that, that seems to work for a lot of people. Um, we've had some who've done the certificate to kind of test the waters and now they're thinking about coming back for the full masters. Um, and we also have, uh, folks in the certificate who have even less of a technical background, um, because they don't actually have to like write any programs or anything as part of doing the certificate program. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, just kind of, um, looking at the fact that the program's been around for for 10 years. And I think there has been a shift in consumer awareness and also I think how um, companies think about privacy and customer trust. Uh, And and that's probably a part of the growing, you know, privacy regulations around the world. But there seems to be, you know, some sense of urgency for companies with regards to customer privacy or or it's more front of mind and they're prioritizing these things. So how... Has industry awareness or challenges in relation to privacy changed engagement with the privacy program over the past decade? Has it grown a lot from when you first uh, started back in 2013? Yeah, yeah. I think um, we're seeing a lot more privacy engineering job posts and therefore a lot more companies coming to us uh, looking to hire our graduates. Um, Also, um, because we have these capstone projects um, that 
uh, are sponsored by companies. Um, we're, we're getting more interest from companies in sponsoring the projects and working with our students. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think the industry is much more uh, aware of their need for privacy engineers. And what, you know, from your experience of working with students, what actually ends up tending to attract people to moving into roles in privacy? You know, a lot of these people are graduating with computer science degrees. They could go into industry, start making, you know, a very nice living as a software engineer, but they're choosing to go down the path of, of learning more about privacy and potentially becoming a privacy engineer. Yes. So I think there's a a variety of motivations. Uh, A lot of our students have somewhat interdisciplinary backgrounds. So besides their computer science interests, they may have an interest in the law or policy. uh, And so this is a way of kind of combining their interests. Um, Some of them have just a very strong personal interest in privacy, and they'd like to have a career that aligns with their personal interests and values. uh, And they see this as as you know, closer to their values than just you know, building random code that, that they may or may not care about. Um, so uh, yeah, lot, lots of different things I think draw people uh, to privacy engineering. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think it's something that uh, you know, it's great that there's job opportunities, but it's also something that I think you can be very easily passionate about and have combine both you know your technical training, uh, making a nice you know potentially probably a nice living, as well as actually doing something that feels personally meaningful. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit and start to talk about some of your research. So before diving into some you know specific questions about some of the studies you've conducted, just broad strokes, how would you describe your area of privacy research and the types of problems that you're interested in studying? So I've been focused on the human side of privacy research. Uh, and so I'm interested in understanding people's attitudes and preferences related to privacy, uh, as well as uh, in um, building tools that it w- will make it easier for people to protect their privacy. So I do a lot of user studies. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I, I definitely want to talk about some of this. Um, so I guess some of your specializations around, you know, privacy related decision making. So what have you discovered in terms of like how individuals think about making privacy decisions? Yeah, so uh, there's kind of a popular thought that uh, people don't really care that much about privacy because they so readily will give up their privacy. And um, we've done a lot of research to try to understand that. And basically what we've seen is that it's really hard to figure out how to protect your privacy or to even know when your privacy is at risk and when it's not. And so the trade-offs of privacy versus all of the convenience and services that we want are, are not so clear cut. And, um, and the fact that people seem to be foregoing privacy is not necessarily an indication that they don't care. Um, and in fact, when we talk to people, most people do care about privacy. And uh, it's, it's really a question of um, what sort of trade-offs they're willing to make. And there's increasingly people who even just feel like there's nothing that they could do. Even if they put in the time and effort and money, they couldn't protect their privacy. And so they've basically given up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we've been uh, exploring a lot of that. 
So in terms of like companies' responsibilities when it comes to uh, making sure that their users understand what their privacy options are and not feel you know hopeless in terms of managing their privacy, what can companies do to go beyond just the minimum terms of communicating privacy choices to users? Yeah, so I, I think, um, f- first of all, uh, companies should offer good choices um, because there are a lot of things that are called privacy choices that aren't really the choices that that uh, consumers are looking for. Um, so offering those choices and not um, giving users kind of a lot of um, uh you know, bad options. There, there really is no no good option here. So that that's a start. And then when you give people uh, real choices, um, making them easy to access and very clear. So I don't have to go dig through lots of menus on your website to find the choices. They're not written in a legalese, so I can't really understand what they mean. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times the like user interface for navigating and understanding privacy controls in this piece of software is like super complicated. You might as well be like trying to fly a plane. So, you know, what does your research help teach us about improving the usability of those privacy controls? So I think uh, a lot of it is, you know, good usability design, you know, um, I think uh, many companies have usability teams that focus on the core part of their product and they never have them touch the privacy-related pieces. And um, what we've seen is that for any sort of usability, you have to test it with your target audience and make sure that they can use it. It doesn't matter if the developer can use it. You need the target audience to use it. And companies just aren't doing that for their privacy interfaces. So, you know, we've seen in our study that, you know, every time we run a study with users, there's always something that surprises us about what people think and and how they're using it. And, uh, you know, companies really should go through that exercise um, and and understand w- what's tripping people up and then uh, try to make improvements accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point that even goes beyond this specific example of privacy controls where I think historically companies have made the misstep a lot of times of assuming that they can test some part of the product that's not maybe the core product, like documentations that is a, a really common example when it comes to like a developer tool. They test that with their own internal engineering, but they have so much understanding of the product already that they don't really have the the real user in mind and you end up with like a bad product at the end of the day. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, so I, I would say, you know, testing is a really big thing. Um, and then I think there are also some conventions that we have in the industry that aren't really very good. And companies just use them because everyone else is using it and it seems safe. Uh, But we should probably take a step back and find better ways. So for example, we've been looking at the um, cookie banner interfaces. And there's some standard terminologies that everybody's using to describe cookies. And most consumers really don't know what that what those terms mean. And we would probably do better if we adopted some clearer terms everywhere. Hey there, it's Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com community.
Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, example of something I talk about. Like over the last few years, there's been almost every time you go to a website where they're essentially collecting any information, you're going to be hit with you know the onslaught of a cookie consent overlay and pop up. And this is like the first thing that you see. And of course, everybody loves pop-ups. So they're you know always always ready to, to read everything that's there. But so, you know, what was the event that kind of led to the introduction of the consent dialogues for consumers to, to start with? So I think this came out of uh, European law and um, the fact that uh, companies were told that they had to have informed consent before uh, using most types of cookies on websites. Um, if there were essential cookies, it wasn't necessary. But for, for all but the essential cookies, they had to have informed consent. And under European law, that means opt-in consent. So you can't place a cookie until the user has opted in. And so that leads to a desire to put something in the user's face as soon as they arrive at the website so you can opt them in right away and now you can set your cookies. Um, and thus we have the, uh, the cookie banner pop-up um, and then I think uh, in the United States, um, we have some companies that, uh, that are doing that because they're also trying to comply with European law. Um, but increasingly, I see it being misused by companies who don't really understand why they're using it. And this is especially small companies who don't have big teams of lawyers or privacy engineers to steer them. Um, and I, I've actually talked to some of these organizations and said, right, you have a cookie consent banner that's completely meaningless. I don't even understand what I'm an expert. Expert, and I don't understand what you're trying to communicate here. I don't understand why you have this. And they're like, well, we thought everybody had to have one. And so we just put this here. Um, yeah, that's kind of a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily that companies are like intentionally tricking users into accepting something is more that they just don't understand even what they're asking, but they understand at least enough that I'm supposed to have something. So they just put something up and then, you know, it leads essentially to a bad user experience. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. And there are now a bunch of companies in the um, consent management platform, CMP business, that are providing uh, packages that companies can get uh, for a low cost, sometimes even free, um, that will put these banners on their websites. And um, some of them, the default settings, uh, aren't particularly privacy friendly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, I guess, how should these prompts be designed to help maximize usability? So uh, one of the things uh, that we see is that uh, users will click on buttons. Um, they want the button that makes the prompt go away. They don't want to have to go through multiple menus. So if you have a choice of accepting cookies or click on a link to manage cookie preferences, and I don't know what's going to happen when I click on that link or how hard it's going to be. Nobody's going to click on that link. They're just going to click on the button, accept the cookies, make it go away. If on the other hand, you put your cookie choices, each one is a button. So I have three buttons in that panel. One is accept all cookies. One is accept only strictly necessary. And then I could have um, you know, another one that's some subset of cookies then a lot of people are going to choose between those buttons because they can see all the choices right there. Um, you can still have the link or a, another button if you want to manage 
all the fine grain details. Hardly anyone does, but it's there for those who want it. But those three big buttons, that's going to help a lot of people. Um, so that's uh, what I'd like to see companies moving uh, towards. Now, in addition to that, I would also say we need to move towards a framework where we don't solve this problem with lots of pop-ups. Yes, I would love that. Uh, <laughs> I do feel like the I have recently started to see that pattern, the button pattern that you're seeing, not super common, but I have seen it a little bit. Do you think you know privacy regulations like GDPR need to be more prescriptive in terms of how people meet their requirements? Like, should usability guidelines essentially be part of those privacy regulations? Yes and no. Um, so I would love to have good usability guidelines be part of those regulations. I have also seen that the regulators don't know anything about usability either um, and are not well equipped uh, to write those guidelines. So this puts us, in, we have this tension here. Um, and uh, in fact, I've, I've seen um, uh, examples of best practice that have been put out by various uh, uh, European uh, regulators that are really not very usable. And uh, and people have said to them, like, why are you putting this out as, as a good example? Like, it has all of these problems. Um, so I, I think maybe the solution is for the regulation to say that we need to have these things be usable um, and that they have to be tested to ensure that they're usable. And then perhaps for the regulators to work with usability experts to make uh, guidance that isn't necessarily built into the regulation, but is a companion set of guidance that shows examples. Um, and that, that may be kind of a compromise in a way uh, that um, uh, also helps uh, make sure that what they claim is usable actually is usable. Yeah, maybe they just need to include a line to say, you know, run your UI by uh, Dr. Craner before you go live. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, so with these um, usability tests that you're running where you're, you know, testing privacy choice and testing other things with user, does the collection of the actual test data run into any issues around privacy that you yeah. have to navigate? <laughs> Um, it, it can. Um, so since we are in a uh, U.S. Uh, academic institution, we have to use an institutional review board to review all our research protocols with human subjects. Um, and they, they are very keen to see what kind of data we're collecting and what we're doing with it. Um, we try to minimize personally identifiable information. Um, and when we do an online study, we can actually really minimize that a lot. So we actually just finished collecting data on cookie banners from over a thousand users. We don't have their IP addresses. Um, the only identifier we have for them is their prolific ID. And prolific is, is a company that recruits crowd workers for studies. Um, so Prolific knows who they are and Prolific paid them, um, but we never get that information from Prolific um, and we don't give Prolific any of their um, study data. Uh, it's completely separate. Uh, and so this, this uh, allows us to protect people's privacy and we try to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, and I can remember when I was doing my PhD and running usability studies, having to go through that same sort of internal application process to make sure that you essentially have a, a review board that makes sure that the things that you're collecting are in violation of any any sort of uh, you know rules or regulations. So 
Another area of research that you uh, have, have published about is around this notion of a privacy nutrition label. So what exactly is a privacy nutrition label and what problems is it meant to address? Yeah, so the idea behind a privacy nutrition label is that there should be a short, simple format for privacy policies that has a lot of the properties that a food nutrition label has. Um, so uh, generally, they're in, in kind of a tabular format. Um, they're they're very short. They're standardized. They use you know consistent terminology, uh, things like that. Um, and the the hope is is that if you can boil down um, the privacy policy information to this label, it will make it very easy for consumers to compare privacy policies across companies and also um, look for the information they particularly care about. So we've done designs for website um, nutrition labels for privacy. We've done uh, mobile app labels, and um, we're also working on IoT device labels. Oh, that's great. I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's something that like a consumer could readily understand. And my understanding is Apple, you know, introduced these to the App Store uh, in I think 2020, and then Google's done it recently as well. It, but the labels are generated essentially, just self-generated by the app developer. So, in those, you know, in the App Store, how good is the actual resulting privacy label if the developer themselves lack privacy training and education? Yeah, so they're really problematic. Um, uh, we we did our work on um, app privacy labels about a decade ago, and nothing happened. And then um, all of a sudden, Apple rolls them out, and we were very excited until we saw them. <laughs> and um, uh, we discovered that, first of all, uh, consumers don't understand them because they use kind of strange terminology. And second, developers don't understand them, um, both because they use strange terminology and because they're really complicated for developers. And so we, we've done studies both on the consumer side and the developer side and realized that they have a lot of inaccuracies because even well-intentioned developers aren't getting it right and consumers don't understand them anyway. Um, and we've started to look at the Android labels more recently, and um, they're different. They have different problems, but they also have a lot of problems. I see. Is there uh, you know, third-party services and companies that help developers or will help developers essentially craft these privacy labels, or maybe there's not really an industry for that particular offering? I think it's emerging. Um, I think that uh, some of the big privacy companies are starting to offer services along those lines. Um, I've, I've recently seen some advertisements for new services. Uh, here at CMU, uh, we have some projects where we are trying to develop toolkits for developers. Um, so we have students that have um, built a toolkit where a developer can basically take their app code and, um, and the tool will um, automatically generate a lot of the label based on the developer's code and also prompt the developer to answer some questions in their code. So there's some things that you can completely figure out automatically. There are others that you have to ask the developer, okay, so when you send this data to this other place, like what happens there? And the developer is going to have to answer some questions. Um, but it's a lot easier to answer it in the context of looking at your code than in the abstract later. Yeah, that's amazing. That sounds incredibly useful. And I imagine it puts things in the context of the 
understanding of the developer versus something that's like written generic and, and super abstract that they might not be able to map what their product's actually doing to this more you know general notion of of privacy for for these apps. Yeah. So I guess what advice do you have for developers that are maybe struggling with this problem? Maybe they, you know there's some that are they have the right intention but maybe just lack the training. What advice do you have in terms of helping them create an accurate privacy label? Yeah, so uh, in the absence of tools, um, there are at least glossaries um, that both um, iOS and uh, Android have on their developer sites that tell you all the terms and what they mean and how you're supposed to use them. And so I would say definitely read those very carefully. Um, you know, we found in our studies that the developers just tried to guess without reading it. And then when they went and read the definitions, they were often surprised at what some of these terms meant. Um, and they, they could do a much better job after they read the definitions. Um, uh, but uh, hopefully there will be tools available uh, in the near future that will make it even easier. So moving away a little bit from your research and kind of looking ahead to the future, what are your thoughts, I guess, on the future of privacy engineering as, um, as something that's going to be, uh, or I guess, a role that's going to expand within the technology industry? Yeah, I, I think it's continuing to grow and I see no sign of that stopping anytime soon. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see, um, expanded roles, uh, for privacy engineers. And, um, it's also interesting that privacy engineering is not a monolithic area. There's, there's so many different roles. And, you know, even within one company, I mentioned we have a lot of graduates who are privacy engineers at Google. And there's at least half a dozen different types of privacy engineering roles that I've seen our students take there. Uh, so, uh, I think, I think there, that, that the industry is finding uh, even more uses for privacy engineers and, and reasons that they need them. And, and I think that will continue to happen. Yeah, I would just, I, I, these, you know, specialization within privacy engineering is not surprising to me. I think, you know, that's kind of uh, how, that's the trend for all engineering or really all roles as things become uh, more widely adopted. You have bigger programs, you have to have specialization and something like privacy is such a big space. There's, you know, over a hundred privacy laws in the world. It's like, no one per person could possibly like keep up to date on everything. So it makes sense that people are going to have certain specializations as more as, as companies invest and develop more advanced programs. They're of course going to start just like you have specialization within software engineering. You're going to have these like specialized roles within your pri privacy program. Yeah, I think so. In terms of, you know, predictions looking ahead to privacy education and awareness, do you think more universities will start to offer programs like CMU or at least a, a course introducing the basics? Uh, I think we'll see more courses. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that here we are 10 years later and there aren't other master's degrees in privacy engineering out there. Um, there, there are other certificate programs, there are other courses, but uh, I haven't seen um, another school offer a full-fledged uh, master's degree, uh, but eventually someone else is going to do it. Uh, but but I, I am seeing more um, uh, courses and more students who are applying to our master's program who one of the reasons they say they're applying is they took a privacy course as an undergrad and got interested in privacy. So that's nice to see. 
Yeah, and I think that's needed. You know, if you never have exposure to a particular subject area, it's hard to know, like, oh, wow, this is, like, really interesting. Like, I think, in retrospect, uh, if I hadn't been exposed to it as an undergrad, I would have thought, like, oh, well, this is really interesting. Maybe I would have pursued a master's degree in it. But you just, like you mentioned earlier, there's not enough sort of security and privacy exposure in most undergrad computer science programs. So people typically end up going down career paths or, you know, graduate programs that are more familiar to them. Yeah. You know, outside of, you know, education and and the awareness challenges, what do you think the big gaps in data privacy are today? Are there future technology or developments that you're excited about? So I I think, um, you know, we're still looking for the kind of the silver bullet that lets us protect privacy and use data. And um, you know, d- differential privacy has given us um, that tool in some areas, uh, but I don't think it works well enough in as many domains as as we would like. Um, and and it, it may be that there there is no silver bullet and we're never going to um, completely have that. Um, but, you know, finding ways of um, balancing the use of data with uh, privacy protections is, I think, something that we're all continuing to struggle with. And hopefully, over time, we'll find better techniques to make that work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in conversations with various people in, in the context of this podcast, I think differential privacy, homomorphic encryption, like a lot of these kind of uh, future-looking privacy-enhancing technologies is something that commonly comes up as uh, things that people are you know excited about. And I think it really always goes back to that trade-off of data security versus data utility. How can we essentially maximize security while still allowing us to actually use the information? Yeah. So, and then I guess the other thing I would raise is that on the user side. Um, it is really unsustainable to have users interacting with privacy pop-ups all the time. <laughs> um, you know, it's bad enough that we have to do them for cookies, uh, but we have surveillance devices all over the place and with IoT devices all over the place, it is not realistic that every time you walk by a, a smart thermostat or a smart light bulb, you're going to have an interaction with it. Like that's just not gonna happen. And so we need some way to make that um, privacy choice scale. And I think that the only way to make it scale is to take it out of the hands of users to do it one-off every single time. And so we need systems where we are transmitting privacy choices in a machine-readable way that users can set up their preferences and have user agents that automatically send signals with their choices. Um, and, and this is all seamless and easy for everybody to understand. Uh, so I'm hoping uh, this will happen in the future. Um, I've been talking about this vision since I got involved in privacy tech in the late 1990s. And um, perhaps I was just 25 years ahead of, <laughs> of my time. Um, I'm hoping that that soon we, we will have something like that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, for me anyway, your research is so interesting. I think it's a different, I haven't seen a lot of um, uh, you know publications focused on this side of privacy. And I think it's a really important one. In a lot of ways, we're in the GeoCities era of of uh, essentially privacy controls, tw- you know, 25 years later, uh, fast forwarding today. So for people who are listening to this and they want to learn more about, you know, your research and other things that's going on with, at Carnegie Mellon University in this space, 
what uh, you know what resources would you advise them to check out? Yes. So uh, for educational resources, if you're interested in the master's program or the weekend certificate program, check out privacy.cs.cmu.edu. That's all about our privacy engineering program. And then for the research that I've been working on, um, that's on my lab website. Um, That's the CUPS lab. So cups.cs.cmu.edu. Great. And I'll include both those links in our show notes. Anything else you'd like to share before we uh, start to wrap up? Uh, I think that's good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your expertise. I, I, you know, I really enjoyed learning about your research and I think listeners are going to get a lot of the conversation as well. I'd love to have you back at some time in the future uh, to dig into some of the other things that you're doing in your research and, and some of the things that your students are doing. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 